0: Let's do this, the Cult of Hockey podcast by the fateful and for the fateful. I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy and Kurt Levins. Welcome, gentlemen.
1: Hello, David. Hi, Kurt.
0: Hello, hello. Great to have both of you here tonight. It's always a treat when uh, the, th-
1: mm, <laughs> the three of us get fun.
0: together. Indeed. All right. Um tonight we're uh, looking both back and forward, mainly back, but a little bit forward. Uh, and uh, to the orders lost to Vegas in the playoffs and forward to the next season. And we'll do our uh, traditional uh, two good things, two bad things and two numbers podcast, but because there's three of us, that'll be three good things, three bad things and three numbers. Uh Kurt, why don't you <coughs> Excuse me, Kurt, why not you start it off? with your good thing?
2: Uh, well, my good thing is is really a, a reference to how far the Oilers have come as a competitive team and their path in the future. Uh, and so my good thing is the age and contract status of the core of the team. Um, I don't think it is uh, a surprise to anybody uh, that I believe that the Oilers still, even though they're out of the playoffs, I still think they have the two best players in the game. And I think they have a core uh, that is strong and together for at least a few more years going forward in which they can work around this core to take the steps required to get to the promised land, which, of course, is the Stanley Cup. Um, you know, if you if you look at a couple other, you know, Canadian teams, you um, Neither Vancouver or Montreal have a measurable core at this point. I would argue that Winnipeg had a core and it has been slowly peeled away the last couple of years and will probably do more of that again this summer. Um, and Calgary's core didn't want to play there anymore and they left.
0: Ouch.
1: <laughs>
2: and Ouch. So, what we really have is we're really down to two Canadian teams now and the Maple Leafs core has been knocking on the door long enough them to consider breaking that core up at this point in time they have they've reached the determination you know what we've tried everything else maybe this isn't the right core to get us to the promised land and i think if they keep the same gm that they have had i think there's going to be a big change in that core the one canadian team that doesn't have to worry about its core are the oilers uh, what what i argue is why they are not still going is that there were too many little mistakes that happened against really good hockey teams. And when you go down to 16 teams, then when you go down to eight teams, and when you go down to four teams, every little mistake you make is magnified because the opposition that's waiting for you is that much better equipped to pounce. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, the fact that this core is still a very high quality and is still under contract for years to come gives me confidence that this was a progression even though we went a series shorter than we did last year and that they're poised to recoup that plus some next year. That's what I maintain. The core is here and it's Edmonton's uh, for the next couple of years. Uh, we're in far better shape than any other Canadian franchise that you can look at.
0: Kurt, I'll, I I I think you you spoke well there. I'm going to make uh, three points about what you said. First of all, um, I agree. Like Calgary and uh, Vancouver have a little trouble because two players that they hope to build around J.T. Miller and Jonathan Huberto, are on absolutely massive contracts, but they they had really poor seasons. And man, that's a scary thing for any franchise when you start to get. Uh, players earning a huge amount of money. I think, actually, Huberto's just starting his contract this, this coming season.
1: Coming. Now Kadri, the other one?
0: Yeah, and Kadri, and, and then JT Miller in uh, Vancouver. In Vancouver. Okay. Yeah, that's the other guy I'm referencing. Although, Kadri, you know, I'm not as sure about whether how Kadri's year went, because he's he's a little bit different kind of player. You just don't rate him on his scoring. He's a, kind of a enforcer glue player as well. The other in Toronto, I agree. Like they seem to be talking about maybe getting rid of John Tavares. He's getting a lot of criticism. I never liked that. I, I thought that was I a mistake when they went for Tavares initially. I mean, I'm not always right about these things. I'm often wrong, especially teams that I don't follow that closely. But I didn't like that that move. I just thought, wow, you are tying so much cap space up in that player. And is that really the right thing when you have something good going here with all these young guys? Um, and but the third thing is. You just compared the orders to all the Canadian teams. Ain't no Canadian teams left in the playoffs right now. Oh, and the cores we have to worry about aren't just in Canada. and and I'm know, I know that you you're thinking this and you know this, but the the point I make like yes, the orders have a good core, but man, some, some of these other U.S. teams, so do they. they? There's a lot of wicked competition for the orders. The Colorado core is still amazing. It was such a gift to the Oilers when Colorado got eliminated this year. Such, a, it just opened the door so wide, not to have to go through that team, which is an excellent team and had some bad injuries this year. Maybe will next year too, but it's gonna be. It's. Uh, I don't know. Like, I don't know if it feels this way to you, but like when the Oilers were winning in the '80s, had such a dominant team, it seemed like there was such a gap between Edmonton and most the vast majority of teams in the NHL. And, um, and I and I think this is true that you you were just able, just by luck or by the salary cap structure, the NHL's contract structure, you were able, able to bring together all this incredible talent and keep it together by chance on one or two or three teams in the NHL at that time. There wasn't as much competition. Now it looks like there's going to be eight teams at least any year who who are gonna just challenge the orders like nobody's business for the Stanley Cup. Every single season, it's going to be brutal, the playoffs. It's going to be really hard. And I think when Ken Holland talked about um, you just want to keep making the playoffs to give yourself that chance, that one more chance, that one more chance. This is the new NHL where you're just hoping to make the playoffs year after year after year to give yourself that chance because there's no team. There is no team, as the Boston Bruins will tell you right now. It could be considered a favorite to win the cup. And that includes the Edmonton orders. I think I was overly, overly optimistic. Obviously, in my uh, enthusiasm for the orders this year, um, there's just a lot of good hockey teams out there.
1: Um, well, there's uh, just, to, just,
2: just to briefly answer back. I think Edmonton has a, has a superior court to Vegas. They just lost the series. I think they have a superior court to Dallas, but Dallas is you know has advanced. Um, I So I stand by my comments on, on the court, and I can expand it to anybody else in the West as far as I'm concerned. Sorry, Bruce, go ahead.
1: Yeah, that's ahead. all right. They got, uh, uh, in the NHL, five, uh, five teams with over 110 points, uh, seven teams with 100 to 109, another eight teams with 91 to 98. So you got 20 teams with over 90 points. And you guys... No, as do I, any game is going to be decided on the bounce of a puck, uh, a call that happens at the wrong moment, um, you know, deflection, uh, really, the the margins are so close that the uh, uh, randomness becomes a major player in the outcome of a game or even a series. And you can have two sort of equally matched teams, and of course they're going to split 50-50, but you could have one team you know, significantly better and it still might split 60-40 or, you know, it's not basketball.
0: Yeah, this series did come down to a few calls, a few plays. Um, you know, if they go differently, then the, the series outcome could be different. Because there were significant areas where the orders were a lot better than Vegas and mm-hmm. and the other way around, uh, to be fair. But you, you know ahead.
2: what, I would add to what Bruce said, what you can do when you're in a situation like that, where Gary Bettman's NHL today is, equity is is a thing. I completely agree. Well, then you must be able to control what you can control to win. And I think we can all agree there's a few things in the postseason that the Oilers could have controlled better and didn't. And those things arguably cost
0: them the Vegas series. Indeed. Bruce, what is your good thing?
1: No, um a little bit on a parallel track to Kurt. In fact, I might be the other rail on the same track, but I'm thinking, I think the Oilers did take a step forward this year. I think the the, uh, uh, the identity of the team is, is, uh, strengthening. Uh, they, you know, they emerged as the top scoring team in the national hockey league this year. And by some distance, so 20, 25 goals above Boston, 24 goals, something like that. And, uh, uh, they have, uh, uh, and those those things, uh, especially that offense was much much better in the second half of the season than the first, and so was the defense. And then we're left wondering, well, what what happened to it when we're playing against a good four line, three D pair, twenty five goalie team like uh, Vegas uh, that uh, you know were you know legitimately able to, to walk away with the series. So uh, we won a playoff round for the second year in a row. The last time that happened was in 1997-98 with Ron Lowe at the helm. They beat Dallas Stars on the kujo uh, save slash Todd Marchant goal, uh, famously game seven in overtime in Dallas. And then the next year they uh, beat uh, uh, Colorado uh, by scoring the last nine goals of the series as Cujo completely bamboozled uh, the great Colorado avalanche of uh, Joe Sackick and uh, Peter Forsberg for the last eight periods of the series. (laughs) So those were good times, but they were sort of isolated miracles that happened to happen two years in a row. It's like getting a great comet two years in a row. and. Yeah, I would wait a long time for the next one. Well, now we finally got it where we've got a team that was able to win the playoffs, not only make the playoffs two years in a row, and even that didn't happen for about almost 20 years, but win a, win a playoff series each year. And uh, uh, Jay Woodcroft is just the fourth orders coach to do that.
0: My good thing is, um, you know, Kurt, Kurt's looking at the, um, when you're talking about the, the, the core of the team, generally speaking older players on the team and and, and the older veterans are still not thankfully they're still not that old so just to build on kurt's point Eckholm will be 33 next start next year kane um i think 32 uh jack campbell 31 zach hyman 31 Nugent hopkins 30 uh cody cc and brett kulak if they're both back or one of the, one of the two of them are back they'll be 29 darnell nurse will be 28. Leon Drysaddle will be 27 and Connor McDavid will be 26. So this is not, this is a young team. Uh, it's core is not that old. It's not that ancient, so that's really good. But I'm encouraged, um, by the youth wave on the orders. And, um, they've got, they've got, they're gonna, you know, we don't know how it's going to be down the road, but in the coming years, they've got some talented players. That are just coming into their own. You know, chief among them is Evan Bouchard. Uh, he of the 31 minutes in the last game, who oh. just he just suddenly looked like maybe a number one D man in the NHL. You know, he did. He wasn't perfect at the playoffs. He made a lot of defensive mistakes, but his offense was out of this world. And he and Ekholm just looked like a like a true top pairing. Um, you know, one of the best pairings in the league, possibly. Uh, for the next maybe couple of years. So that's really encouraging. So Bouchard will be 23 next year. Philip Broberg, um, who was spotted this year, but I still see is on the same trajectory as Oscar Clefbaum, and a player of very similar skills. The Clefbaum will be 22. Dylan Holloway, who didn't get a sniff in the playoffs, um, probably should have. Uh, he'll be 21. Ryan McLeod, 23. Klim Kostin, 24. Stuart Skinner, 24. So they have this group of young players. Um, Kalari Yamamoto will be 24 next year. And again, we don't know if he'll be back either. But this is, this is is that's a significant number of, of talented players who are still getting better. I'm going to add to this already good group of forwards. To that list, I would include two players or a few players on the farm. Xavier Borgo Bar- will only be 20 years old at the start of next year, although he'll quickly turn uh, 21. Tatar Tulio will be 21. Uh, and Raphael Lavoie, who's, who is a, a big, hulking, and super aggressive forward who can score a bit, he's kind of like clean Costin in a way. Um, will be 22, so um, there's talent coming up, and that talent could uh, push the Oilers to the next level. They're going to need these. They're going to need these players um, because there's going to be injuries every year in the playoffs and they're gonna need players to be able to just step right up and step right in and excel. But I think they've got some good prospects in that regard.
2: And David, just to support your point, you know, in the in the salary cap era, the Oilers are gonna need a few million dollar or less players in order to make this work. And a few of those young players have the ability to give the organization that. So just to support your point, it's it's gonna be key for the organization to get a couple million dollar players just to make the cap work.
0: Yeah, it'll be interesting because it's like there's some contracts that are up for uh, Jan Mark, Bugstad and and Ryan. Now these are older players. Uh, they'll be Bukestad, uh will be 31, Jan Mark 30, and Ryan uh, 36 to start next season. And if they if any of them start asking for too much money, you know, having these younger players gives the others the ability just to say, well, you know, I think we'll take our chances with the guy who's going to make league minimum instead. And um, I like all of those three players. I wouldn't mind if all three of those guys are back, especially Ryan, who just excelled in the playoffs. But if if they can't make the, the money work, then they can't make the money work, and they just have to go in another direction.
1: Well, more and more they're getting squeezed on this uh, salary. You can also not only just bring up your own young players at somewhere near the minimum, but you can get a lot of veterans for near or even yeah. at the min- minimum that are pretty good. And there's this big job hunt that goes on, and, you know, second half of July, right through to training camp of guys trying to sign on somewhere for a year, take a big cut, you know, try and make their way back. Guys signing PTOs, whatever. There's there's lots of options. And we're even at the point where the $1.25 million salary is, I mean, that costs Matthias Janmark his job in the NHL at the start of the season. He was sent down because he made too much. They had to make cap. And it was either him or Ryan who was going to get sent down. And Janmark went down. Only when Kane got hurt uh, did a whole bunch of cap space free up. And then they they called him and Koston up. And that, those, those guys both made the most of their opportunity, which is uh, at least one uh, development over the season, especially important for Costin because uh, the club still has rights on him, whereas Janmark's uh, UFA again.
0: Yeah, so I, I I don't know if those guys can get those 1.25 million contracts this this summer. Mm-hmm. They might have to settle for the league minimum if they want to be Oilers, and we'll see how that see how that plays out.
1: Closer to it, within within 375 thousand of it is one is one of the barriers uh, where you can at least send the whole contract down to the miners and not be stuck with any of it.
0: That's a good and point, Bruce.
1: So that's you might see like this year the minimum goes up to 775, and you might see some come in at 1.15 million. But even that even that margin makes a difference, right? A guy who makes the minimum is has got no obstruction to getting called up or to avoid getting sent down. Devin Shore made eight fifty, and uh, Matthias Janmark made twelve fifty, and that four hundred thousand dollars me- meant Devin Shore made NHL money, and in, in, in the NHL, and Matthias Janmark got NHL money, but down in the minors. So you can bet who is happier, even even with the disparity in pay.
0: All right, let's move on to the bad things. Um, Kurt, lead us off.
2: Uh, I'll lead off with injuries. And that probably seems a little bit like a loser's lament. Um, but I think injuries are a legitimate thing that any any team has to deal with. And if you get too many and they start to add up, well, they start to chip away at your effectiveness. And I think you can make that argument for any number of NHL teams this spring. And I, the, the evidence is growing that you can add the Oilers to that list, maybe not number one on the list, but I think significant. Uh, first of all, we know that Evander Kane had not just one or two, but three significant injuries this year. We all know about, about the wrist contusion. I think everybody knows about the broken ribs. Then he played through the playoffs with a broken finger. Um, so, you know, pretty obvious that one of their three best players in the playoffs last year was was significantly compromised physically. Turns out Warren Fogle had a, had a hand slash wrist, wrist issue and practically wasn't able to shoot and practice for the last two and a half months. Uh, so certainly that that pulled down his effectiveness as well. Uh, it was abundantly clear that Zach Hyman was not 100% uh, in the, you know, the final 10 games of the season and through the postseason, even though he put up some decent results. It wasn't the same player that we watched for most of the season. I found it interesting that Hyman Wasn't too interested in elaborating on his injury um, postseason. But, hey, that's his business. And you know what? There's almost certainly one or two more that we don't have full details on yet that that we'll learn from. But those are three pretty significant pieces. And if any of those guys are at, what, 80 percent, 70 percent, 60 percent, that starts to eat away at the effectiveness of of the entire team. Other players less capable start to get more minutes than they maybe should get end up going into positions they maybe aren't ideally suited for. Uh, and at the end of the day, as you say, in these playoff series, every little bit counts. Well, yeah, including if some of your your better players, including two of, our, our I'd argue, your best wingers, Hyman yeah. and Kane, had no significant argument. victories, and, and I bet you they, neither one of them were better than 60% in the postseason.
0: What I'd like to see is a player like... Um... You know, if Costin could have been given a little bit more ice time, like I understand he might have been banged up too. Like if Hyman's not going or Yamamoto's yeah. not going, that was one of the things we're going to get to this. But, you know, why not move somebody up and give them a bit more of an opportunity if you're top guy. And I know like the injuries weren't nearly as bad. They were far more significant last season when dry saddle and nurse were both hurt and clearly hurt and not close to their former selves in terms of their agility on the ice. Um, that was a much bigger factor. It bothers me in some ways because the it looked like the core players were relatively healthy, like the very you know elite players on the team. To which I might add, Akhom to the list now. You know the top three guys plus Eckholm, they all looked really healthy, and, and that's another f- frustration is they couldn't win when those guys were just flying out there. But
2: but I think Jay played them until their tongues hanged out onto the ice. I, I you know it's uh, I don't think there's it- any. Leon Dreisaitlal had a tough game six, they played the hell out of him. Uh, I, as you know, in my, in my column this past Sunday, I, I made a case that Jay Woodcroft needed to, needed to get more from his entire lineup, that the big guys needed help. And the coach didn't give it to them. Now, maybe he didn't have the healthy number of bodies to do that for them. I don't know. Um, but when uh, you've got five Oilers playing less than six minutes a game, only three for Vegas... And you got six orders playing more than 23 minutes a night and only one for vegas well it, it stands to reason at some point you're going to run out of gas and i think to some extent that's what happened
0: bruce your bad thing
1: yeah i'm going to go with the state of the oilers goaltending and specifically that state as the season came to an end here with uh, uh, i think probably neither goalie in a very good space and frankly Uh, likely not um, uh, Coach Jay Woodcroft as well. Uh, But we had the the odd situation to me that that, uh, uh, Stuart Skinner outplayed Jack Campbell significantly during the season, won the starting job, and held the starting job. And uh, Jack Campbell uh, didn't measure up by the numbers. Uh, which he was—he uh, was quite poor in the in the regular season, uh, with an 8.88 uh, save percentage. Uh, and uh, come playoff time, it was like the job was Skinner's, and it was going to be Skinner's no matter what. Uh, when in fact, in the playoffs, uh, Skinner, who started 12 out of 12 games, put up uh, percentage numbers that were worse than Campbell's during the regular season. 883 save percentage, 368 goals against average, which Campbell's, I think, was 3.41. And, I mean, so Skinner's going to be in a bad place in the sense that he got the big opportunity and he didn't quite measure up to the opportunity. And Campbell's going to be in a bad space that he didn't get the opportunity at all. Uh, I mean, they brought him in time and again to mop up in games and time and again he came in and he played well. If you go to NHL stats page and look at the goalies, leaders, you'll see Jack Campbell's pictures at the top of the goals against average and save percentage columns. And by wide margins, 961. Now, that was all basically in garbage time because each time he came in, the Oilers were three or four goals behind or certainly given up four goals. And Campbell mopped up. But after game five, when Skinner got pulled for the second time in three games, I felt sure that Camelou again played well, very well in relief. I think you gave him an eight, David, Uh, in game five. I thought, now he seized it; this is his turn. And yet that didn't happen in game six. So that's, uh, 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 what I don't like is where it leaves all these people as they head off into their various summers. And Jay Woodcroft who made that decision on the other end of that equation, you have Ken Holland, who was the guy who made Jack Campbell his showcase signing over the course of the summer and yet not given the chance to come in and save the day when the day pretty clearly needed saving. So all of that, you know, I just don't think anyone's quite in the right place. And hopefully, for especially Stu Skinner, he's a very level-headed guy. I saw him interviewed, you know, and he's going to take the positives out of the positive experiences and he's going to take the positives out of the negative experiences. And he had some, uh, certainly had some of the latter in, in, in the playoffs, but he also had, you know, he's a Calder Trophy finalist. He's uh, uh, he got a nice, shiny new contract. He's, he's a dad now. He made the All-Star game. You know, a whole lot went right for that guy, and hopefully he looks back on that. And uh, uh, that's what's going to be his takeaway from this season. But right now, I bet you both those guys are just kind of not in a very happy place, and I'll leave it there.
0: I think Skinner will be okay. He just I just heard him today like he said it was his time of his life in these playoffs and he's just oh, a very level-headed guy. I'm not I'm not worried about Skinner's um, mental state. These are professional athletes, very tough-minded and Skinner just strikes me as totally tough, like just a not a tough cookie, but just a calm guy, super yeah. confident guy, calm guy. Uh, uh, he you know what worried me in the end, Stoffers uh, quoted this a couple of times. He only played six games in a row in the regular season. Then all of a sudden you went to 12 yep. and that's, that's the whole issue there. It's clear that he got worn down by the playoff experience. And, and in retrospect, like I, I was okay with him going with Skinner in the, in game six. So I'm not going to say anything about that. I was wrong. I think Woodcroft, Woodcroft was incorrect as well. You know, it, it's, but Campbell was shaky all year. Um, he, in the in the last playoff, in his first couple playoff uh, appearances, he didn't get scored on, but he also looked shaky. And um, you know, I am more concerned about Jack Campbell's mental state. But I do think he just he's got a he he got a shock this year, and he needs to rebuild his game. He needs to come back. He needs mm-hmm. to work. He needs to rethink what he's doing, rethink his psychological approach, or both, and come back and be a better goalie. Because this is a performance-based sport, and um, he just didn't cut it for me. That's and, and that's why I was okay with Skinner playing because I just had no no confidence in in Campbell. So,
2: you know, I I think both you guys make excellent points, and I think I agree with everything you said. If I could just add to it, um, I publicly supported the decision to play Stuart Skinner in Game Six. I would have done the same thing, and I said on Twitter all the reasons why I would have. And I don't take that back. Uh, What everybody is quite willing to do is say, oh, see, they were wrong. They should have started Jack Campbell. Well, what makes everybody so sure the result would have been so different than Jack Campbell? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Jack Campbell is a good human being, a good teammate, and I don't wish him any wrong. But he had chance after chance after chance all season long to oh, prove to the coaching staff that he was the guy and he <laughs> blew every bloody to did. the point where in the playoffs, my read is the coaching staff just didn't trust him in that position anymore. So they danced with the girl that, that brought him. Uh, and they they said, let's we're going to either win or lose with this guy. Well, they did. <laughs> but I, I, I don't disagree with their choice, and I, I agree with what David said. Jack Campbell has to come back next year and earn that contract because he didn't this year. Uh, don't mean any disrespect to the guy. I think is a good guy, with him well. But um, that was a super poor performance that reflects badly on the general manager, frankly, because he's the guy who signed the check. So.
0: I, I do like that Campbell actually had a couple positive games. Like in the last couple uh, relief appearances, especially the last one, he finally looked settled. Like he finally looked at home in the net and yeah. um i think that gave a lot of impetus to the people who were calling for him is that he finally looked like instead of someone who was looked rattled he looked someone who was confident and and ready to play well which he had not looked all year uh but he did look that way so i'm glad in a way that he you know i he's got plenty of motivation but he's also um has that little bit of an uplifting experience right at the end of the season where at least he turned it around a bit that might give him some hope coming into next year that if he just keeps working doing what he's doing he can turn things around and um i see i'm starting to hear a little bit of you know there's always criticism of the goalie coach after the goalie coach has been around for six seven years starting to hear that in edmonton i i've known expert on this um, i I do know like uh, I do know that Sean Burke had all four goalies in Vegas playing above their heads. Um I don't know if he's available or not, but um just add that in there my um my bad thing is um after having quite a spectacular season as the coach and a strong postseason last year, Jay Woodcroft had, I think. a a pretty terrible series against Las Vegas as a coach. And, um, he hasn't, he, you know, with coaches, I always say they have nine lives and you start counting the things, the mistakes they make. And Mm -hmm. it was pretty hard to start until this time in Woodcroft's career in Edmonton. He hadn't accrued a lot on his list. I don't know if he's burnt off any lives at all until this playoff series when he's used about three or four of them, I I think. And, um, (laughs) Just being the nature of the beast. The the first thing I'm gonna so there's the there there's the Campbell Skinner decision, which Kurt and I both uh supported Bruce. You you wanted Campbell, the majority of the fans wanted Campbell. So that's one life. That was a that was a big decision, and it's not gonna be forgotten. It's gonna be raised. And when I say it's a life, it's gonna be something raised continually. The second one is the order's um uh line matching, especially in game in game six and it was, it was frankly bizarre. And I don't know um, what he was thinking. I guess he didn't want, the whole idea was to get McDavid away from the fearsome William Carlson line. And, and um, I I was listening to uh, Ryan Rashad's podcast with Jason Strudwick, which is, which is quite excellent. Mm -hmm. And, um, and Rashad made a good point. You know, he's, McDavid only played 521 of the first period. This is the biggest game of the year. Connor McDavid has said he's gonna, we're gonna give our best game. You know, he should have been on the ice eight minutes of that first period, nine minutes of that first period. But you don't start the game with him because you want to keep him away from the feared checkers of uh, you know, the feared Carlson checking line. I don't, I didn't see that with with Vegas, that that line being such a such a dominant line. The line I was worried a lot about was the Eichel line. In the end, the Jack Eichel was on the, on the ice for 10 even-strength goals for, one against. He was the dominant even-strength player in this series. And who did outside. they have on the line? They had three players who are, who are iffy defensive players, at least at this point. Leon Dreisaitl, Kyler Yamamoto, and Ryan nugent hopkins They would be the last three. That would be the last line I would have picked to go against, other than the fourth line, would have picked. And yet they were out there, and they got, and on on they got whipped at even strength, and there was the two goals against in the second period because of defensive lapses, partly by the forwards, partly by the D men out there, the whole unit. So that that decision just befuddled me. Like, why wouldn't you have the McDavid and McLeod line going against Eichel, and why? So out of all these TV time commercial timeouts, uh, Cassidy's happy to put Carlson on the ice because he knows. He knows, hey, that means no Connor McDavid. Brilliant, he's thinking. What is Woodcroft thinking? I just I don't get it. What was he thinking? And you know, why not have McDavid against Eichel? Um, Connor McDavid can take on anybody. He is the best player in the world, and he is a solid defensive player at this point. He has a he has a fundamental understanding, uh, I think, of his, of his role in the defensive zone. Um and uh he was not used, and uh, we have the result that we
1: have. Uh, I think McDavid would have welcomed the challenge of the one-on-one against Eichel and probably upped even his defensive game a little bit. And you know, you're not going to beat me there, old well, number two. You know, and uh, anyway, we just never really saw it. And uh, it was either Bugstad against Eichel, which was a disaster, or else it was um, Dreisaitl against uh, Eichel, which was also a disaster. I mean, when you think of it, Eichel was on the ice for 10 goals for Vegas that even strengthened the Oilers as a team, scored nine goals, as even strengthened the entire series. So Vegas's defensive system seemed to work a lot better than Edmonton's.
2: I two points. One, I think it comes down to speed. Uh, if you look at the numbers through the series, the two Oilers centers who were having the best success against Jack Eichel, were Connor McDavid and Ryan McLeod? Hello, the two fastest centers on the team. Like it just doesn't seem like it takes a rocket scientist to figure that out. And the other thing that befuddles me about it is, was Jay Woodcroft the only person in the world who thought that the Oilers' problem was not enough offense? Like, didn't didn't everybody agree that the problem in the series was they were giving up too much? I. I'm I'm with you. I I would have said best on best. Here beat Connor McDavid. See if you can do it. Uh, that would have been a way better matchup. It's I, I I I don't go against Jay on the goaltending decision as I outlined, but I thought his line matching in game 6 was abysmal.
0: As soon as I saw it and I was at the game, I just felt honestly I felt sick. I just thought what is he thinking? What is he doing? Like who does that? And 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 you know what? I guess he thought that Leon would rise to the occasion, which is a possibility, right? Like, but it's just, you know, Leon's fundamental defense hasn't been there all year. He's not that player. And um, Nugent Hopkins and Yamamoto—they are—they slu- were slumping badly in the playoffs. Nugent was just having a hell of a time getting anything done. What made him think this was going to work? I mean, it's—it's it's definitely one of his lives. Um, it's not going to be forgotten by, by anybody, uh, any Euler fans. And, and uh, what I'd add to it is this. There seemed to – Jonathan Marsh or so made a comment after the game that the owner, that the Vegas knew Oilers play man-to-man defensively in, in their zone, and they had the strategy to beat it. And um, I'm going to go over the videotape and have a closer look at this because I'm a little bit curious about what Vegas does differently in playing a zone. But what we saw repeatedly, I think, was Vegas um, trying to... The forwards moving from um, below the goal line out to the blue line um, in the offensive end, sometimes out of the blue line. And what that dig was continually drag the orders defensemen who were one-on-one, Darnell Nurse and Cody Ceci and other players, dragged them right out, way out of position. And what that left was a forward, sometimes a really small forward, like Kadri Yamamoto covering the this, this slot. And if you're Vegas, what are you, you're thinking, who would I rather have covering the defensive slot? Little Kyler Yamamoto or Leon Dreisseltel who tends to wander around or big Darnell Nurse or Cody Ceci? The answer is simple. And what we saw on the on the second and third goals was Leon Dreisseltel covering the front of the net. And uh, Ceci out at the point on one and Nurse, um, I don't know where Nurse was. So. I
1: think both of them are out at the point on one.
0: Yeah. They're just, the, the owners were dragged all over the ice by this, I think, um, purposeful, high-motion offense that the, that, the, uh, that the Knights brought in. Maybe they do this all the time against man-on-man, like when they get man-on-man teams. Maybe it's constantly. But either either Woodcroft has to teach that defensive system better to players and they have got to listen more attentively after this brutal, painful uh, lesson against Vegas, or Woodcroft has to change that system to one that, that his players can can handle and understand, to, and, and, and I don't, you know, one where it's more of a zone, where the defenders don't come way out to the blue line. Um, they stay, they switch off, and they stay in front of the net or in the corner. Uh, it's more simple in that regard. But um it, this didn't work. They got whipped, and this is part of the reason they got whipped at even strength.
1: Yeah, who was it who went around Yamamoto, maybe Mark Stone? It was a big... Big, high-skilled guy, and he just made mincemeat out of him in the slot because, I mean, Yamamoto tried to cover whoever it was because both D-men got sucked over to the boards or out to the blue line or whatever. And it was never going to end well, and it didn't.
0: (laughs) Well, in the second Vegas goal, like like the the goal that tied it up in game six, I just have this image of Marsha Show charging in from the blue line, down the center of the ice, and initially Nugent Hopkins has him, but then Nugent gives him off to Drysaddle, who doesn't, Leon doesn't see him, and then uh, Marsh or so is wide open for the, like, the tip pass from, I think it was Eichel, uh, from the point shot, and um, it's just, th- this system, it's got way too many break, it has way too many breakdowns, there's way too many. Players open in for wide open shots. There has been all year long in the defensive slot. And my go-to has been to blame the players constantly for this. Maybe the coach needs to understand the players, what players he has and their limitations and what they can and can't do. You can keep pushing people to do things that they're not very good at, or maybe you change your system a little bit. And I don't honestly have the answer about what the correct answer is there. Maybe it's a bit of both. But the Oilers were a terrible defensive team. It, when they needed to stop the other team, when they had a lead, they were consistently atrocious on defense. <laughs> they just gave up goals repeatedly when they had the lead. They, they couldn't hold it. Anytime were you guys ever confident in this series when they got up two to one, three to one, it was always like, oh no, here here it comes again. Just that feeling like we can't hold a lead, this team. And, in, and, and until and part of that's on the goaltending, obviously. But until they can do that, they can't win the Stanley Cup. Yeah, well, they
1: couldn't... Oftentimes they couldn't hold the lead for one minute. You know, they (laughs) scored like they scored the first goal in three of the first five games, and in three, well, two of them it was tied within one minute, and the third one it was tied within two minutes. And all three times Vegas went on to win those games because the Oilers could never consolidate. Even you know, like to get you know a full a full uh, cycle of lines go through and that scoreboard stick there at one nothing, and then maybe you add to it as opposed to, oh, they scored, we better get that one back, bam, and it's in the net. And mind you, game six happened, exact opposite. So, and that didn't help the orders in the end either.
0: Yeah, I say all this fully realizing that Jay Woodcroft has forgotten more about NHL defense mm-hmm. than I will ever know in my life and that he is the expert and I'm sure they've been over the, the, I'm sure they're pulling out their own hair and thinking about this, brainstorming about this, talking about this, trying to figure this out. But it's apparent that what's happened to date is, isn't, it's not yet working. Um, I don't know if it is. Maybe they've tried different things in their system. (laughs) Maybe they'll try the swarm next. Um, But uh, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. I, I just, Seeing their players, I, I I just love it when Darnell Nurse is playing in front of that net, sticking in front of the net, and then going to the corner when the puck's in his corner and not running around all over the place. I just think yeah. he can be such a fantastic defenseman when when that is his uh, modus operandi. Yeah. So I that's part of it. I just think they're not – It's this isn't – I'm not sure that this system matches this group of players, mm-hmm. and Nurse in particular, who is such a key part of the team. And um, I don't see the value of him chasing players out to the, to the, to the blue line. I, I don't get it. And, and I also noticed, like, Vegas did a much better job of cutting off, like, shots from the outside from the points. Edmonton couldn't get those shots in, and Vegas was more able to do so. They, were, they scored on a couple of the dreaded Californians, you know, the point shot that was deflected in or tipped to someone else and goes in. And we couldn't get that kind of greasy goal. And so so whatever the Vegas was doing on their defensive system, Jay Woodcroft, watch that, take a really good look at that and think maybe that suits our players. Maybe there's something there that we should do. And, uh, you know, what's that about imitation being the best part of flattery? Um, Flatter Cassidy, steal his system and beat him with it next year.
1: Uh, One of my visions that will linger from this series is Nicholas Haig, of all people, scoring the game-winning goal in the 4-3 game, game five that turned the series, firing a big floater from uh, the blue line. uh, That went by Kyle Yamamoto, Evan Bouchard, uh, Matthias Ekholm, and uh, uh, Stu Skinner, all of whom were in the shooting lane. And somehow the puck eluded all four guys and found the top corner of the Oilers net. And, of course, Skinner never saw it. He took a lot of grief for, he just did the old shrug my shoulders. What the hell happened? And people say he's showing up as defenseman, but come on. He's uh, shrugging his shoulders in disbelief. What happened? Uh, Anyways, uh, that, that one will linger. I mean, Nicholas Hay could probably take that shot another few hundred times before he makes it again. Let's put it that way.
0: Kazari's arm in the air on on a play that he didn't see with Philip Broberg is going to be the image that stays in my head. That was a that was a jackass call. All right. What is your number, uh, Kurt? 17. Uh,
2: the Oilers were uh, 17th in the NHL this season uh, in goals against. Uh, so if you decided the top 16 seeded teams based on goals against the Oilers would miss the, the postseason. Um, we all know these guys should score. And this is always going to be an offensive team. Yep. They're never going to be a defensive team, but you can't be 17th in the NHL in oh. goals against and expect to win. You can't give up the, the volume of, of goals that the Oilers gave up in the playoffs and hope to win the Stanley Cup. They have to do a combination of things. They have to shore up the defensive aspect of their roster. That's mostly doing a little bit around the edges uh, because most of the roster is locked in. Uh, they do need to do a better job of defending in their own zone. Uh, everybody just has to be more detailed. They're not there yet, and it's obvious. Um, and But my number one thing on defense is they have to play less in their own zone. Um, uh, this is an offensive team the best way for them to limit chances against is to be on the attack. One of the things I saw when the orders, as you rightly pointed out, couldn't hold a lead is the orders would get a lead and they'd start to sit back. Well, I'm sorry, this roster isn't built to sit back. They're built to attack. Uh, and there's such a thing as attacking in a responsible te- responsible way. Lots of NHL teams do it. The orders are the perfect candidate for that style of play. Um, but if, unless they climb from 17th to, you know, probably 10th or better, uh, I'm just not sure it'll get over the hump. I think they can get there, but they, they're going to need to do some, make some roster tweaks. They're going to need to set their minds to it. And the players and the coach are going to have to understand how that roster is comprised and how best to use it to limit goals against. And of course, the goaltending you know um, um they were behind the eight ball from the word goal because the starter who was supposed to be the starter never was end of story
0: yeah and as you say that's on ken holland yeah. bruce your number
1: yeah i'm going to go with uh number 153 and uh just as a way of um a backdrop uh, I'm not one who, you know, obviously what happens at the end of the playoffs, how a team season comes to an end, is a defining thing about that season. So any season that doesn't end with the Stanley Cup is in one sense or another a failure. You didn't win the Stanley Cup. Whether you went out in the second round of the playoffs, third round of the playoffs, whether you finished 30th out of a 30-team league and picked first overall, you know, uh, there's different measures of failure and success for that matter. Uh, the latter is a successful rebuilding team. Anyways, uh, the one season maybe that was most defined by failure in Edmonton or by playoff failure in Edmonton Oilers history was 1986 against Calgary Flames, when they lost uh, the Battle of Alberta in the middle of their four in a row, four otherwise four in a row Stanley Cups from '84 to '88, and yet. I look back at that season. And I think that wasn't that. That wasn't a failure. I mean, they always had 119 points. They won Presidents' Trophy by a wide margin. Uh, they won the scoring championship. Paul Coffey's that was still the all time record for 48 goals. Wayne Gretzky's that was still the all time record with 163 assists and 215 points. There's a lot of nice things to remember about that season, even as that crushing failure is kind of what you remember at the end of it. Well, this year the, the it hurts. It was I was expecting this team to go deep this year, and I, I'm uh, very disappointed with this, especially the manner of the last couple of, couple of losses. Uh, but looking back at the season, and you look at Connor McDavid, 153 points, not quite Gretzkyan, but he won uh, he won the scoring championship by 25 points, which I believe is the largest margin in the current century. Uh, and the fact is that he won the margin over his teammate, line mate uh, uh, Leon Draisaitl, 128 points which tied the previous mark for the most points in a season this century. David had 25 more points this year than any player has in the last 25 years. So dominant was his season, and so dominant was Dreisaitl's season, uh, that uh, as a hockey fan, we have a lot to be thankful for. We've got an interesting team to watch. They're frustrating, they'll piss you off, You know they'll lose games that they should win, but man, do they deliver on the entertainment front. Uh, this year's devastating power play it was such a joy to watch. Another record breaker. And uh, uh, so I take positive things away. I, I still think they're building. They're, they're, there's finally a real evidence of a build. Now it's four years in a row in the playoffs under Ken Holland, two years advancing past the first round, and the core of the team's going to stay intact. But, I mean, let's start with that 153-point guy, Connor McDavid, uh, 26 years old and and uh, and dominating the league, and it's you know the future's pretty bright. Whereas what team was it this year? I heard that had uh, their first 30 goal scorer in 10 years. Can you imagine? I think maybe it was Arizona. Or anyway, can you imagine being a uh, season ticket holder for that team?
0: Well, we went through the decade to hear of darkness, so I can imagine it.
1: Even then, we had the odd, you know. Yeah, we had some but, good players. I think Dustin Penner had a good season in there somewhere. Dale <laughs> Yakubov. Yeah. Hope. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, we had hope.
0: We, right. we do have a fantastic team to watch, Bruce. We yeah. are so
1: fortunate. And, Be thankful. Uh,
0: yeah, and this core, you know, we have a lot of PTSD in Edmonton because every great player has moved on from Edmonton yep. before. You know, and that that may not happen with it might happen with McDavid and Dressel. It may not, right? Mm-hmm. This is their I think I think that this team is building, is getting better, and this is the best place that they have the chance, both to all of these friends to play together and win a Stanley Cup together, which That's is what enough. is life That's about big. What is life about? Like, it is, some people, it's That's all big. about making the money, right? And and maybe there's going to be an opportunity for players to make significantly more money in other seasons, uh, teams, and that could break up the orders. But it, it's not that NHL. And I think for the key players, the others will be able to pay Drysdale McDavid what they need to pay them, whatever it takes, in order to um, keep them here. So I do think it is big, this idea. We're, we're hearing about Austin Matthews looking at re-upping in Toronto now. And, um, I do think that's important for a lot of players. If you can create an environment, a hockey environment that they like, and, um, just being together with your buddies and your friends. I mean, that's a, that's mm-hmm. significant in life. And I think it's a, as likely, if not a far more likely outcome than this team falling apart, um, in a couple of years with, with, uh, the good players, the, the superstars leaving. So we might actually be doubly blessed in that we have them here, um, for this early part of their career but maybe we'll see them throughout throughout their careers and uh see how this goal this goes. It is kind of a magical team in a lot of ways. Uh, and we're frustrated with them right now. But man, what we saw in the power play this year was oh. was it was,
1: and in it, was the playoffs, it
0: was marvelous. It was they were so it was it was hypnotic, it was mesmerizing. It was a thing of beauty to see that that power play move the puck. There there was the one i don't i can't remember uh it, it ended up with uh nugent hopkins taking an outside shot that was deflected and mcdavid put it in from the side of the net but it would have been like i think about 90 seconds of just incredible passing shooting winning the puck um ending up in a goal from this power play and that but it wasn't unusual it happened again and again my number though unfortunately is just i just want to the, the orders did get more Grade A shots than Vegas, 93 to 76. That is a considerable number more Grade A shots, and it speaks to the goaltending issue um, that developed um, during this series, with especially in the end with Aiden Hill having such a great game at the end. Um, but at, at, even, at even strength, and this is where we get to the the problem that we've discussed uh, at length, at nauseum in this podcast. When it comes to the very best shots, the five alarm shots that go in about 33% of the time, it was 31 for Vegas and 21 for the Oilers. So that was a significant edge in this one part of the game. And if the Oilers can, if you can even that out, Edmonton Oilers, and get uh, decent goaltending, you you know, it's not massive. Obviously, it's not massive change that the Oilers need, which is lucky because all their players are locked in on contracts. It's going to be harder and harder to make changes in some ways but they do need to make some change and they need to grow out of this. And um, I still think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. And uh, I'm looking forward to next season. Final thoughts.
2: Um, I'll offer up a final thought. Um, I think I've extracted my pound of flesh from Jay Woodcroft (laughs) today. Um, Let (laughs) me say this though. I think Jay Woodcroft is an incredibly smart guy and a very, Coach who has done nothing but experience, learn, apply, and advance throughout his career up until this point, there is everything on his resume to suggest that he will go to school on this experience and be the better for it. So while I'm quite willing and able to criticize his performance in the postseason this year, when I look over the body of work of Jay Woodcroft, I've got confidence going forward that he is the right coach for this team. And this learning experience has the potential to turn into something much better for him down the road.
1: I'm with you, Kurt. uh, I mean, I look at Jay Woodcroft now. He's been in the league for 15 months. Regular season, 120 games played, 76, 32, and 12. And I think that's tied with Carolina behind Boston for the best in the entire league since he got called up. Uh, now in the playoffs 14 wins 14 losses but as mentioned before at least at least one playoff series uh, victory in each season and uh, uh, to me he's got a very positive record right now and that the fact that his season comes to an end just when the spotlight is on him in a negative way is going to make it a bit of a long summer for him uh, but I think he's pretty secure unless Ken Holland's uh, pissed at him for not using his uh, number one signing last July 1st <laughs> in the playoffs. Uh, I think they're, I think one of Holland's best moves that he's made so far is bringing up Woodcroft and then extending him. I think that that's turned his franchise in a, in a very positive direction. And it's a big part of the reason why I remain positive about the uh, uh, shorter term now future.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, uh, I, I just wrote a, a Vegas uh, uh commentator has ripped um, uh, has ripped uh, Jay Woodcroft but um fire and I wrote a, a post on it. But um and he's echoing many of the things that, that are said in Edmonton. But he's this guy's saying you should fire him. You need a veteran coach like Cassidy. You know, we've had that veteran coach thing. We had McClellan, Hitchcock and Tippett. Um, Jay Woodcroft has gotten more out of this group than any of those more veteran mm-hmm. coaches. I Great. think he's the right I I really think he is the right coach for this group and he's gonna grow I completely agree with you. He's going to grow out of this experience and be a much better coach uh, next year. And um, he's going to figure this out and get this team going. And I think I think between them, Campbell and Skinner can figure it out too. Like Skinner was a really good goalie this year through the regular season. He got worn out in the playoffs. End of story. Simple as that. Campbell, um, he after five pretty good years as a, as a pro NHL goalie, five good, decent years, um he his game uh fell apart this happens with goalies in the NHL all the time and they bounce back um who's the Florida goalie this year? where was he Bobrovsky. where was he a year or two ago like he's been up and down up and down Jack Campbell can can figure this out and come back so I, I'm actually not that pessimistic about the goaltender. like some people are talking about buying out Campbell already and moving on like like are you serious? No you're gonna if we get another year like this, that will be in the discussion, but mm-hmm. come on, we got to see this guy w- at least one more year and see what he can do because I think he can bounce back. And he did have a, a good streak of games in January, January where he looked like a, like he'd solved the problem and was and was um, confident again and and um, good in the net, sound in the net, uh, at home in the net. He's just got to find that home again for himself, and I think he will.
1: Yeah, well, it's kind of reminiscent of, well, we've seen the situation often. We've, we've had the the cheaper of a two-goalie system be the number one. Mike Smith had signed three different contracts here that were all like half price or less of what uh, 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 Mikko Koskinen was earning on an annual basis with uh, Peter Shirelli's last hurrah uh, in uh, just before he got fired in, uh, in 2019. Uh, but before that, I mean... We Had a long situation where Devin Dubnik was the understudy to Nikolai and until he started looking at stats like games played and started and so on, where Dubnik gradually took over as the number one, even though he was by some distance the, uh, uh, the lower paid. Now we have both Skinner and Campbell on the books for at least the next three years at uh, 2.6 and 5 million respectively, and the Oilers' history itself says it'll probably be the lower-paid guy who gets more of the work. And it's just kind of business as usual. It seems like a bit of a sad situation. I personally am hoping, well, hard for both guys. Jack Campbell, there's more there. He had a tough time, but, I mean, he got to play behind the Oilers' defence, and as we've been discussing, that's not always, a, <laughs> not always the best deal. They got lots of goal support, and, and he used it to win a lot of games, so...
2: Um, I have one more suggestion. How about a quick survey for, from each of the three of us? Who's the one Oiler least likely to return next year?
0: Well, okay. Um, I, why don't, do you have a name in mind, Kurt? Do you want to start?
2: I do. I think it's. Go ahead.
0: Not- Kyler Yamamoto. Yeah. A lot of time for
2: Kory Yamamoto. I think he works hard. I think he's a smart player. Hunts pucks. Um, But he is a bottom six player uh, making top six money. And in the salary cap era, I don't think you can do that anymore. And the risk to injury
0: is too great. But so how do they get rid of him, Kurt? Because then you think another team will trade for him? him? Trade him for a pick,
1: buy him out. He's, uh, he's under 27. He's under 26. Pardon me. So he's only a one third of his salary split out over two seasons. So you could buy him out for 500,000 change cap hit for, for two years, which, you know, it's a pain, but it's not like this huge whopping value. Like the James Neal contract, for example. Uh, you've got, uh, uh, so if you can't find a taker for him, rather than throwing in a big draft pick to, to to download the contract, just bite the bullet and take the 500k cap hit for uh, for two years and you work around it.
2: I, yeah, I, I if that's your second option, yeah.
1: I'd rather trade him, obviously, and I think you could. So yeah, I think obviously problem. that's choice for number one.
0: You're gonna get a second or a third for him, right?
1: That's fine. Yeah.
0: yeah. Chicago needs uh, some NHL need players now that they have Connor Bedard. They can't do what they did this past year. They need NHLers. They need a lot of NHLers. And Kyler Yamamoto and one of the orders defensemen, Cody Ceci, I could see them heading to Chicago, um, quite honestly. That, that's a team that needs players and um, NHLers. Kind of NHLers, and they're both NHLers. There's no doubt about that. So um, my pick, um, I don't know how keen they are on moving Cody Cc. And if they do move Cody Ceci, it would mean moving Philip Roberg to the his offside or Kulak to his offside, which I think either players, they're such fantastic skaters they can handle. I would have guessed that Kulak would have been traded this summer before the playoffs. But Kulak was outstanding for the second year in the row in the playoffs. He it has good. to count for something. Now, the other thing they're factoring in, Cody Ceci, all year long, played the toughest competition he was injured had a groin injury uh all year most of the year fighting that he was really good the year before and maybe they're thinking we don't actually want to get rid of cody C. like he he can get healthy and he can be a really good player for us and we just we're going to bring back the same seven defensemen and we're going to count on we'll have an injury probably and and philip broberg will get his chance that way or he'll beat out de Harnay or you know it will just do it that way but they might want the cap space um, from either Kulak or CeCe. So I could see, m- my bet is, I'm not sure, but I think it's it's a it's a real possibility CC will be on the move uh, because of that. And I hate to say that because I think he's a hell of a sound positional defender. He's a really good hockey player who is in a super tough role on the Edmonton Oilers um, and has been a really good player. But that's why other teams are going to want him. He's, he's a good player at his price tag. And I think you could get a draft pick for Cody CC. Like he's, I do too. Yeah,
1: he's your spirit oiler, David.
0: He is. That's right. If you're not familiar with that term, Kurt, it's the it, it, when you're a beer league player, it's the player on the orders who most resembles the game you play on your beer league team. <laughs>
2: oh,
0: is your spirit oiler, and that's uh, for me. It's 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 Cody CC For my wife, it's Kali Yamamoto. So <laughs> we've just we're going to get rid of both our spirit oilers here. They, they traded uh, my
2: spirit oiler. That would have been Tyson Berry. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: That's
0: great, Kurt. You know, I don't think they can – with with Yamamoto, I think they've got one too many small forwards. You can have Derek Ryan on the team next year. You can have Ryan Nugent Hopkins on the team next year, but you can't have three of them, I don't think. It's just mm-hmm. – size matters in the playoffs. How many small forwards did Vegas have, for instance? I didn't notice a lot. is not big, I guess, but uh, – anyway. Bruce, who are you picking?
1: Yeah, I'm picking between the same two guys they had to pick between at the top of the season, the, the $1.25 million forwards, Derek Ryan and Matthias Janmark. And I am picking Derek Ryan to stay, and Matthias Janmark is being the guy that's going to uh, uh, make his way on to his next destination. Uh, I think he was pretty good. He, You know, he was a proven NHLer, came in and was uh, – um, Given a you know a roll down the lineup, and he didn't make the team for reasons. and uh, but when he did, he was a top penalty killer by by uh, minutes. Uh, and uh, yet he left me found uh, I, I was left wanting for at least a little bit more offense out of the guy. And also uh, in the last two games against Vegas, I thought he had like poor two games, and he took a really, really, really costly penalty in Game Five. That he went into the box with Oilers leading two one, and he came out with Oilers trailing three two. And that was a big turning point in that game. And I don't think I'd, I don't think his coach was too happy with him because he stapled him to the bench after that, and he played very little in the last game. And I just think they'll They'll just each think it's time to try it. It's time for a second opinion, as Craig McTavish famously said, although in Janmark's case it would be more like a fourth or a fifth opinion by now.
0: I, I would hate to see him go personally. I think he was mm-hmm. like their best yeah. penalty killer at forward, and he, t- he took a slap shot against the Kings and then was never the same in the playoffs. I think it's recency bias, frankly, against Janmark, that he had a well, bad playoff because he was injured. I just thought he, in the regular season he was a solid checker, Solid two-way player at even strength and um, great on the penalty kill. I, I I hope he's back, but you may be well. You may well be
1: right, Bruce. It's, he, it's a him. guess. I mean, uh, um, Kurt took my first choice, which would have been yeah. Yamamoto. <laughs> so, and it may just be who's willing to. Come back at a lower price, and if you know if they sign Derek Ryan for a one-year extension, a a million, say, and it might even be less than that. The way the market is crunching down on these uh, on these uh, lower-tier players, with all of the excess money being paid to the stars, that um, if he says, "Yeah, I'm where I want to be," and uh, uh, I've made a bunch of money in my career already, and another million dollars sounds great to play with this team. And he was such a good fit, man. He had a great playoffs. I love Derek Ryan's play in the playoffs.
2: Yep. Yeah, I'm I'm with you so long as none of those players take away minutes from Dylan Holloway
0: next season. Gotcha. And they sh- they shouldn't. I mean, that's where he should take Hollow- Yamamoto's job. Should, yeah. He should go to Dylan Holloway. That's go. the obvious fit. Yeah. And then you, I just think Holland likes his graybeards. I could see dad, Janmark, and Ryan all coming back. Uh, because I think they're all useful uh, yes. role players. I can see Devin Shore being the guy out and Janmark kind of taking that role. And it, But I agree with you, Bruce, and that it, it does come down to who's who's, who's going to take the contract for, you know, the million one or less. Well, and,
2: and uh, yeah, with 17 goals, I can see him getting 1.5, 1.6 somewhere else. Start, yeah. And that might just be a bridge too far
0: for, for this franchise. I think so.
1: Yeah, I they think just don't have the space. They're going to have to sign a bunch of sub one million dollar yeah. contracts. So, uh, a guy like uh, and Upstad, I, I thought he delivered great for uh, especially the cap hit. But uh, when they started using him in the top six in the and the uh, as playoffs went along, I thought he got exposed a little bit in this uh, in this Vegas uh, series. And again, they'll have to, you know, they're. It's different how you're building a team in uh, September versus what you're that last piece you're looking for in uh, a trade deadline. And as a last piece, I thought it was a decent bet. Yep.
0: Yeah, I, and I think that's what they might be looking for again next year. The deadline is that last piece, and it will be as uh, that kind of forward again. All right, gents.
1: With half retained, David. With half it. Retained. <laughs> Ken Holland has his ways. He's a smart guy.
0: All right. Thanks for talking, everyone. Great to see you guys.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone.
0: And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.